Jack disappeared in the back. Okay, let me go over uh, announcements. Uh, day after tomorrow, we're going to have our annual uh, Christmas uh, party and uh, tree trimming. So be here around 4.30. And we still need, I think we still need some volunteers. How are we doing on that, Ann? Okay. Great, great. Okay, uh, no Bible class next Tuesday night. Remember that. I'll be up at the uh, pre-trib conference. And then next Friday, a week from tomorrow, we'll have the teen Christmas party here at the church and contact Jeff Phipps, who's walking, wandering around the back, uh, if you have any questions about that. And then a week from Saturday on the 17th, is that a week from Saturday? Yes, no, two weeks from Saturday, two weeks from now. Two weeks, the 16th, two weeks from tomorrow, we have the teen Christmas party, and then two weeks from Saturday we have the uh, uh, annual ladies' uh, prayer brunch. I think that pretty much covers the uh, list of announcements. So before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can focus a little bit, get our attention off of whatever our attention's on, whatever the distractions are, worries, concerns, plans, Christmas, shopping, travel, whatever is distracting you so we can put our, our, our focus on the Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure that we're, you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that we can be here this evening to just uh, relax, to spend some time with one another, but most importantly, to spend time with you, to focus on your word, to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of your uh, sufficiency for every situation in life, to be reminded that you have given us such a, a wonderful treasure in your word and that we are to desire it more than anything else in our lives and to not just to know it, but that it is a, that is a means to an end, which is to have a closer uh, walk with you, closer relationship with you, and to put the, these things into practice in our lives. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Romans and our study of your grace in terms of justification, we pray that you would help us to... Uh, have a greater understanding of this doctrine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes, especially in the situation that uh, we've been in, as I've been going through these four chapters at, at, of, uh, of Romans, especially with uh, uh, starting in about chapter 2, we have been spending a lot of time on justification. I hope that everybody here could give a pretty good explanation of what justification means and could uh, at least describe it in more than uh, one sentence and could prob and hopefully could go to three or four different passages in Scripture to do so. So we'll start down here on the front row and just go one by one through. I remember the teen class when... Uh, Pastor Theme used to do that to the teenager. Okay, you stand up. Last week I covered such and such. Now re tell me what I, what I said. So you always felt like you had to be prepared. 
and that was uh, that was excellent, excellent training. But sometimes I think that we we hear things so much that we sort of put our mind in neutral, and we think I've heard this, I understand this, and we really don't. And I remember, and if I used his name, it would probably surprise many of you. But I remember. About 10 years ago, I was down from Connecticut teaching a, uh, a class at a uh, black church down here, and I was teaching on fundamentals of Greek exegesis. And this uh, one individual who uh, is associated with our congregation came, and after we got through looking at Philippians chapter 3, a particular passage that I was looking at, he said, you know, I always thought I really understood justification, but having gone through this in detail, I'm just amazed at how much more I've learned, and, and that's how we grow and how we come to understand the Word. So I want to start tonight in Philippians 3. And just um, what I'm doing here, I've done this a couple of other times, is going to other passages of Scripture in order to correlate what Paul says elsewhere on justification with what he's saying in Romans. Now, last time I started off by going back to the Old Testament in Job uh, 9, uh, verse 2, as it's stated in the uh, um, uh, NASB, truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? That is really the question, and I think we live in an era today when people The average person is so surrounded, especially if you're younger, with so many stimulants. And by that, I don't mean uh, drugs or alcohol, although that certainly is uh, one area of a problem. But I mean stimulants in terms of media, in terms of Facebook, Twitter, email, Internet, all of the things that constantly barrage people, that they don't have time to, and people generally don't have time to stop and reflect and just think about some things. And there, I think there are many people in life who never want to look at this question, of course, because of, part of it's because of what Romans 1 says, that they're suppressing the truth and, and unrighteousness, to reflect upon the fact that if there is a God and I have to stand before that God, how can I hope to make a claim to righteousness? Do I need to make a claim to righteousness? And what would be the basis for saying that I am righteous? That's the term that, that the Scripture uses. It doesn't use a term in, in this sense, are you good enough? It's are you righteous enough? And I think that in the process of, of talking to people about the gospel and about Christianity and explaining the gospel, I think it's important for us in conversations to uh, express our thinking in these biblical terms. Have you ever really thought about how you can be righteous enough to get into heaven? And what does righteous mean? Expressing the idea that this uh, is a standard. It's an absolute standard related to the character of God. And so how can a person be, as Job says here, how can a person be righteous before God? How can we meet that standard? Can we do it through ritual? There's, there, there are only a few answers that have ever been offered down through history. One is that we accomplish it through ritual. Another answer is that it's accomplished through doing 
as good as you can. But doing as good as we can when that is measured against an absolute standard, such as the righteousness of God, it's not going to be enough. And yet man constantly tries to convince himself that he can, God's somehow going to overlook the negatives in my life, the failures, the sin, the immorality, the disobedience to God. Somehow he's just going to overlook that because, well, that's who God is. But we think of what the scriptures, how the scriptures describe God as the everlasting judge, and that as Abraham put it in Genesis uh, 17, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There is a standard that God has as a judge that he will evaluate every person uh, by. That will be that standard. So how can people do that? Well, one option is ritual. Another option is just personal morality or trying to live up to some sort of uh, of religious code. Another is just to, which is I think where we find a lot of people in America, although they're they're split. Some are prone towards self righteousness, and so they want to come up with some rigorous standard uh, code of conduct that they abide by. But where do they get that code of conduct? That's a good question to ask people. Well, I think I'm good enough. Good enough. What's your not that phrase? I'm good enough implies that you have a comprehension of a standard by which you are measuring good. What's that standard? Where did you get it? How did you come up with that standard? What does God say about that standard? Those who reject the standard idea just leap into what we call antinomianism or licentiousness, and they just try to ignore the whole thing, and they say, well, I can't do anything. And really that group that trends towards licentiousness is usually the group that is more prone to understanding the grace of God. This is why Jesus had such a response from the uh, people that he spent most of his time ministering to, the prostitutes and the outcasts of society, the tax collectors, those who were the social pariahs, those who were the uh, unlovable uh, segments of, of Jewish society at the time that Jesus came, not because Jesus was uh, justifying or uh, rationalizing in any way their sin. It is that they understood they were sinners as opposed to the religious groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who thought that because of their position, because of their education, because of their money, because of their ritual, because of their obedience to the law, that that meant that God should accept it. This was the mentality that uh, the Apostle Paul had in which he expresses in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we read in verse 1, uh, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is as, as Paul goes into the last section of this epistle. Rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but uh, for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Notice his language here. He's not politically correct. He's not talking about collies and German shepherds and Yorkshire terriers and Cairn terriers and all of the other uh, cute little household domestic pets. The term dogs was a pejorative, was an insult that was used in relation to 
to Gentiles and in relation to those who had not kept uh, uh, not kept the law, those who were the uh, un- considered the unrighteous, and and yet he uses that term not in its traditional pejorative sense towards the the non-Jews, towards the uh, those who are on the margins of society. If you look at this context, he's applying it to those who were attempting to become righteous by obeying the law. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and then the third one is what gives you the clue, beware of the mutilation. What does he mean when he uses this term uh, to beware of the mutilation? He's referring to those who are insisting that for a man to be saved, to begin to obey the law, he had to first be circumcised. And Paul is very strong in the language that he uses as he expresses this because those who are insisting upon this have created such division and such trauma among all these different churches that Paul had established. When the time he writes Philippians, he is under house arrest in Rome. It's one of those uh, prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians, which we're studying on Sunday morning, are the four prison epistles. So he he is attacking them because they, by insisting upon circumcision and insisting upon observance of the Mosaic law as part of uh, what needs to be observed in order to be justified, um, that that it's caused great division. So the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilation, the Judaizers, those who are insisting on the observance of Torah as a means of gaining God's approval, are all referred to in the same group. And in contrast, in verse 3 he says, uh, for we are the circumcision. He's contrasting we, meaning you, the Philippian Christians, and he's including himself within that group, we're of the circumcision. Now, he's talking about spiritual circumcision. We haven't gotten quite into that verse yet in uh, Colossians uh, 2.11, uh, where we begin to get into the circumcision, the spiritual circumcision, which is the another way of talking about the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that when, we're, when we believe in Jesus Christ, trust in him, and we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the power of the sin nature is broken. And it is that removal of the power of the flesh, Paul calls it in Colossians uh, 2, it is that removal of the flesh that, and by that he doesn't mean the physical flesh, but what it stands for, which is the sin nature, that is uh, what we have in Christ. And so being of the circumcision is not referring to the physical circumcision, but he's talking about spiritual circumcision, which is what takes place at salvation. For we, he says, are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And what he says there is that we are not to boast in the flesh, we are not to have anything, uh, any confidence in anything that we do that comes or originates with our with our own efforts, whether it's ritual or morality. And then in verse four he says, though I I have uh, I might have confidence in the flesh. 
So if, and, he, and he's going to use himself as an example that if anybody could work their way to heaven, he could. And then he begins to go through his his resume. Those and as we've studied the life of Paul before, we know that he was extremely vigorous in terms of the the um, and just obsessed with fulfilling every jot and tittle in the um, in the Mosaic law. And so he he reminds them of his confidences of his uh, accomplishments in the flesh. He says he was circumcised the eighth day according to the Mosaic law. A male child should be circumcised the eighth day. So by saying that, he's pointing out that he wasn't a proselyte. He didn't come into Judaism later, but from the very beginning of his life, he was obedient to every detail of the law. Circumcised the eighth day. He is of the stock of Israel. He's fully genetically Jewish. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means he's just stating that uh, uh, no matter how you categorize or classify what it means to be Jewish, I surpass all of those qualifications. And he says concerning the law, that is the Torah, the Mosaic law and its interpretation, he says he's a Pharisee. Now, as I've taught many times before and continue to teach, we as Christians tend to come to first century Judaism or second temple Judaism in that period with sort of a uh, slanted view, a little bit of a biased view. We look at the Pharisees in terms of their conflict with Jesus. Jesus is the good guy, the Pharisees are the evil bad guy. So when, if we were going to dramatize this, when the Pharisees come on stage, we hear the, the bass notes, we see them dressed in black, and they are the evil villain. But if you were a first century Jew, you thought that there, your, your opinion of the Pharisees was that there was no one better that no one was more moral, no one was closer to God. If anybody could get into heaven, if anybody could gain God's approval by their, by their righteousness, it was, it was a Pharisee. I've had some conversations with three or four different uh, Jewish friends of mine who are not religious, who are not observant, who are uh, agnostic at best, atheist at worst, and uh, yet when it comes to the Day of Atonement, when it comes to the High Holy Days in the fall and it comes to Passover in the spring, they will. I've heard each of them make this comment that if they go to synagogue, they, they won't go to a Reformed or a Conservative or even an Orthodox synagogue. They'll go to a Chabad house. Now, Chabadniks are a little more, they're sort of ultra-Orthodox. But they take the text literally. They really believe that the Bible was given to Moses directly by, by God. And so they have the most, in terms of how we believe, they have the closest view towards biblical infallibility and inerrancy and inspiration uh, of any, any Jewish group. And I find it interesting that here you have agnostic, atheist uh, Jews who think, well, if it's true, they're the ones who have the truth, if it's true. They understand at some level in their soul that, you know, people who are kind of massaging the text and making it mean whatever they want it to mean, how can that really be true? But the people who are taking it literally and seriously, then they must be the ones who have it right. And I just use that as sort of a modern-day analogy because the modern Kavadniks would be somewhat analogous to the Pharisees of the first century. 
They're viewed as being the ones who, if anybody's got it, they've got it. And so in a Jewish culture in the first century, the Pharisees were viewed as the super, the super good guys. And so when Paul t- says this, he says, concerning the law of Pharisee, what you would be hearing is that if anybody could do it on their own, Paul could. He, he had checked off all the check boxes. And then in verse 6, he says, concerning zeal, he was so zealous, he was per- persecuting the church in other places. We know that he was arresting, he was murdering, he was, he was having executions of Christians. He's persecuting the church. And then he says, concerning the righteousness, and that's that key word, concerning the standard of righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Couldn't find anything wrong. And then in verse 7, he says, he, he begins to shift. He says, but what things were gained to me, that which I thought was of value, that which, was I, that which I thought would bring ultimate, lasting, enduring, eternal value, that which was uh, gain to me was, was, I have counted these things, I have counted loss, for Christ, these things I have counted lost for Christ. And what's interesting, I think he's being a little punny here, because he uses the word hegeomai, which is the same word that is the word that's usually translated imputing for imputing righteousness or reckoning righteousness. So he is saying, uh, "What things were gained to me, these I have imputed, or reckoned, or considered as loss." For Christ. In other words, all the best that we can do is loss, but he's going to expand that. And what we have here is a, uh, is a chiasm, which is, uh, you, if you remember, that is a, a kind of a literary device for organizing material. Sometimes you have, um, it, you, if you have two, tr- or two t- basic concepts, you'll, you'll have the first concept and the second concept and then the second concept repeated, and then you go back to the first concept. So it's an A, B, B, A kind of uh, organization. And it drives the attention of the reader to the center pieces because the center of those, of those terms is where you want the focus, the writer wants the focus to be. And so you could have a much more extended list where it goes A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. And again, what's in the middle, what's in the center, is what the writer wants you to focus your attention on. And so here the A term is the things that were gained. The B term is that which is counted loss at the end of verse 7. And then verse 8 begins talking about the things that are counted loss, the things that are counted loss, and expands on that a little bit. So the real focus here is what is counted loss. He says in verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. See, in in just this this short section, you have loss repeated uh, three times, and you have the word count repeated three times. And then we bring in a synonym for loss, which is the word in the Greek, it's skubala. It's translated as rubbish in the uh, in the King James and New King James, but that really cleans it up. It's just basically horse manure or whatever synonym you wish to use. 
Uh, that's what he is, how he is describing the best that he's done. The highest forms of ritual and morality. You think, take a look at any religious order where the people, the leadership has been involved in giving up and all this ritual and all of that. He says that none of that that man can do amounts to anything. It's nothing more than a, than a pile of manure. And we need to count it all loss for the purpose of gaining Christ. See, now we're back to our original A term focusing on gain. So the focal point here is on loss and what constitutes loss. So he says, I count all things loss that I may be found in him. Now, this is where we get into the whole uh, doctrine of justification. And that I might be found in him... And it's a it's it's the word uh, hureo, which is put in the uh, uh, subjunctive passive here that God is the one who would be doing the evaluating, and uh, the the word for finding is really uh, being discovered under evaluation. That I might be found in Him, that is in Christ. Not that I might be found in the synagogue praying, not that I might be found in the temple praying, not that I might be found uh, giving alms to the poor, but simply that I might be found in him, in Christ, because that is the only place where there is, there is justification. Might be found in him not having my own righteousness, not having my own righteousness, and that righteousness is then described as not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Okay, not having my own righteousness, which comes from observing the law, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That is, that which is through faith in Christ. So we have another use of that genitive construction that should be understood as an objective genitive, the faith directed toward Christ, because that's what he's talking about. It comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, and then he clarifies it even more. He says the righteousness from God, which is from God by faith. So he makes it very clear. It's a righteousness that comes from God. Now, the other day, I got an email, and it's good to get emails like this to clarify things every now and then. And the question was to comment on the phrase uh, that uh, that the, every now and then you hear this little cliche in Christian circles that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. And that sounds like a nice little way of remembering what justification means. But when we look at a passage like like verse 9, it's, uh, it, it shows us that, that it's not as if I'd never sinned because I don't, I don't have any righteousness. If it was just as if I'd never sinned, it would be as if I, I don't have sin. It's more profound than that. It's that I still have sin, but what God looks at is what's imputed or credited to my account, which is the righteousness that comes from God. I'm not internally righteous. I'm never made internally righteous, and that's an implication that that uh, uh, that that that, that um, uh, has, is that somehow 
I am made righteous. It's as if I never sin. No, all those consequences, all that's taken away. It doesn't have anything to do with my experience. It has to do with what I now legally possess, which is a righteousness that comes from God by means of faith. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on to show that it's not that getting the right, this righteousness from God isn't the end game. It's only the means to an end that I may know him. See, knowing him isn't a synonym. Knowing him isn't a synonym for uh, salvation. It's what comes as a result of salvation or justification in the process of spiritual growth, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And then verse 11 comes along and says, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection uh, from the dead. Uh, This is a really interesting term here. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down in doing detailed exegesis of this. I just wanted to go through this as another explanation of justification. But the the way it's expressed as a first-class condition, a post, in the, in the Greek, indicates not a if, maybe, uh, the way it's translated, if by any means, if maybe uh, I'll attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's a, an expression of certainty. Paul is confident that he will uh, attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, this term that we find in verse 11, ex anastasin, is a term that means, uh, literally, it's the out-resurrection of the dead. Now, for a long time, I've thought of this as as a rapture synonym. But just recently, in preparation for the paper I'm going to be given uh, next week at pre-trib on, the, on three key or three central rapture passages, I've recognized that there's two things that happen at the rapture. And if you just flip over a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. When we get into the verse that talks about the rapture, that's verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, the caught up is the Hebrew, uh, the Greek word, excuse me, harpazo. And harpazo was translated by uh, rapio, which is a Latin word in the uh, Latin Vulgate, which is where we get our word rapture. So rapture is a biblical word. But who's caught up together with them? Who are the them? The them are the dead in Christ. They rise first. That's a resurrection term. But the only people who are raptured are those who are alive at the time of the Jesus returns in the air. If we're alive when Jesus returns in the air, you're raptured. But rapture does, isn't used of the other group. The other group is resurrected, and, that's, and they receive their resurrection body because they have died. So technically, uh, the only ones who are raptured are those who are alive when the Lord returns. Everybody else just gets resurrected. This is why Paul uses this term. He knows that one way or the other, uh, he's going to go up, but he's close to the end of his life, so he's beginning to recognize that he's probably going to go through physical death. So he uses this term, ex anastasis, 
the out-resurrection because he is beginning to anticipate that he won't be raptured, but he will, he is confident that he will be resurrected out from the dead when Jesus Christ returns. And his confidence comes from his understanding of justification, that it's not on the basis of anything he's done, but it is a gift, righteousness as a gift from God. Okay, let's go back to our passage in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Now, the context comes out of, we'll just go back to about verse uh, 13 to kind of pick it up, because he starts talking, verse 13, about the promise. Before that, he talked about circumcision. Now he's talking about the promise, because that was the focus of Abraham's faith. Faith always believes something. Mysticism believes anything that is somehow present within the mind. We don't know where it came from, but the promise tells us about a specific, a specific articulated statement of God that Abram believed. And so in verse 13, we read for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then in verse 14, Paul says, for those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. And here he uses the term of the law to refer to those who are trying to get righteousness through the law. Those who are of the law are if those who are through, through the law are heirs. And he uses a first class condition because he's assuming, let's assume for the sake of argument that this is true, even though it's not, we're assuming for the sake of argument that it is. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. And the promise made of no effect. Faith is what perceives and what grabs hold of a promise. Then verse 15, he explains it by saying, because the law brings about wrath. I pointed out last time, because when we disobey the law, we get God's discipline. Wrath in Romans refers to God's divine discipline in time, whereas wrath in 1 Thessalonians refers to also to God's discipline in time, but it has a more technical sense of the judgments that come during the tribulation period. But throughout Romans, it's focusing upon God's judgment on those who reject his free gift of, of righteousness. The, the, the law brings about wrath because nobody can fully obey the law. And he goes on to explain it, for where there is law, there is no transgression. I pointed out last time uh, that you prob- what you hear is there is no sin, but the word transgression is the Greek word parabasis, which has to do, means law-breaking, transgressing the law, literally. So what he is saying is that where there is no law, there is no breaking of the law. And even though there was no breaking, uh, no law prior to Moses, there was still sin. We know from what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse uh, 12 and extending down through verse 15. So now we come to verse 16. Verse 16 begins to draw out that conclusion. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. 
Faith and grace go together. Law and works go together. And if, if faith precludes or negates the promise, then, then I mean, faith precludes um, the uh, works, and if works preclude getting the promise because receiving the promise is based on faith, then what Paul is saying is that faith is the only basis. It has to be faith in, that's according to grace so that the promise might be sure to what? To all the seed. Now he's going back to the problem that he is faced with his Jewish audience is that the Jews thought that because they had the law that they had been, uh, that gave them closer access to justification. It gives them special privileges in some areas in relation to God because they have the law. But the, that didn't make them less accountable. It made them more accountable. It didn't give them a, a leg up on getting justified, but it enabled them to understand, or they should have understood more clearly, that they could not be justified on their own. So he says, so that the uh, promise might be to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So here the phrase of the law refers to Jews and of the faith of Abraham refers to uh, uh, those who are uh, Gentiles who are following Abraham in his footsteps. And then Abraham is described as who is the father of all. Now, this plays an important role because what Paul is showing here is that the promise wasn't just to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, but there is a blessing promise in the Abrahamic covenant that is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And so verse 17 begins, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as, as if they did. I want you to hold your place here because we need to go back and look at the original context of this quote in Genesis chapter 17. Now Genesis 17 is when God finally gets specific with Abraham and Sarah about when they're going to have this child. John 7, I mean, uh, Genesis 17 uh, speaks of the, uh, is where you have the circumcision sign of the covenant given. Abraham at this time is uh, in his late 90s. So God has waited until it is very clear to Abraham and everybody else that there's nothing natural about this process uh, of uh, of Sarah's pregnancy. And in verse 5 of this chapter, as God articulates the promises that go with this covenant, verse 4 he says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a what father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Avram, father of many, uh, but your name shall be Avraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. And I will, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you. And so he continues to go on and to explain, uh, explain the promise that he has given to, to Abraham. And then skip down with me to uh, 
to verse uh, 15. Verse 15, he makes it clear that this child is going to be uh, through Abraham and Sarah. He says, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, just as Abram was renamed Abraham, Sarai is renamed Sarah. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. So Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Sarah's not the only one who laughed. You know, we often think of Sarah laughing because she's hiding around the corner. And when she hears this, she's chuckling. And because she chuckled, God said, well, you're going to name him Yitzhak, which means laughter. But Abraham laughs as well. He he doesn't really believe this at first. or it, It's not that he doesn't believe it based on Romans 4. It's that he finds it so incredible that he laughs. And he says in his heart, shall, shall a child be, be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham says to God, see, Abraham's still trying to work the angles and solve the problem uh, on his own. And he says, uh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yitzhak, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, well, God had a different plan for Ishmael. He said, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. See, Ishmael's not viewed as a bad guy. He receives the grace of God, and I believe Ishmael was probably saved. And he receives a blessing from God. It's not the blessing that goes to the Jewish people and is related to the Abrahamic covenant. But he too is blessed. He said, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He will beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation, verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, with Yitzhak, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So now they have a specific time. Now we're told, skip down to verse 24, Abram, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. And that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house. So they fulfill uh, the covenant. Circumcision is part of the, of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, let's go back to Romans 4. Romans 4 says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's Romans, I mean, Genesis 17, 4 and 5. In the, so in the presence of him whom he believed... So this is talking about, going back to verse 16, uh, Abraham, who is the father of us all, and now in the presence, he believes in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist into, uh, do not exist as though they did. Now, the first verb I want to just kind of emphasize here is, as this is translated into the Septuagint, when God's promise to Abraham that I've made you a father of many nations, it's expressed through a perfect tense verb. Now, I keep emphasizing these perfect tense verbs are really important because they emphasize something that's already completed and over and done with, and it's emphasizing the present results of a past completed action. So that means that God has already determined and there won't be any more discussion about it, but the determination related to Abraham has already been made. And so he's just talking about, the, even though it hasn't actually happened yet, 
the decision's been made and God, and so it's spoken of as in the present tense as a present reality. And then Paul says it's in the presence of him who believed. Now this is, I think this kind of cleans up the translation a little bit. I think that people have gotten, some of the translators have gotten a little too, too wordy here. It begins in the Greek with a an adverb that is really a combination of two prepositions, so they, it functions as an adverb, and it governs a genitive case. Well, the only noun in the genitive case is God, and God happens to be separated by about three words from this preposition. But in Greek, you can do that without having to put English in between. So it's really in the presence of God, because God's the one, the of indicates a genitive case. It's in the presence of God, and then you have a relative pronoun, whom he believed. So it's a real clean, crisp, there, I, I retranslated it in this slide. It's a real clean, crisp translation. In the presence of God, whom he believed, that's the emphasis, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, that's the New King James translation, which is better. The, the, the New American Standard uh, shifts it for some reason, uh, calls those things into existence that did not exist. But in the, in the Greek, the, what's up front is calls those things that did not exist into existence. So it's a much stronger statement of ex nihilo, a creation or creation out of nothing. God brings life where there is death. Now think about how many times you, if you read through the Old Testament, you have this juxtaposition between life and death. Moses tells the Israelites as, as he gets ready uh, to, to, uh, to leave them and to depart, he says, you need to choose today between life and death. Joshua does the same thing before he dies. You need, need to decide life or death. The issue is life or death. When you get into the prophets and you read, especially in Kings, this, many times God is referred to as the living God. And how many times did we see episodes and miracles with Elijah and then Elisha where the dead, those who are, those who've died are given life and there's a healing related to life. And even when Elisha dies and he's in the grave, uh, a, 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 a person is thrown into the grave who's dead, and he comes and, and he's healed just by his contact with with Elijah. Now, I'm not sure all of the aspects of that that are that um, God's trying to communicate, but one of the things is that he's the he is a living God, and he is the God of life, and he's the God who brings life where there is death. And this is what Abraham understood, and we recognize because of Hebrews 12 that Abraham finally got it by Genesis 22 when God told him to sacrifice Isaac, that God was going to give him, fulfill his promise, and even if he killed Isaac, God could raise him from the dead and that Isaac would not, uh, would not be permanently dead. So he finally comes to understand, and according to Romans, at, as early as Genesis 17, Abraham is finally getting the picture that God is the one who's going to bring life where there is death, so I just need to trust him. Now, in verse 18, expands on that. Uh, the English says, who contrary to hope, which is a decent translation. It's a para plus the uh, word elpis, and that indicates the idea of contrary to or against hope. We say hope against hope, which 
basically means that in spite of all uh, every, everything that we understand, everything that is available to our knowledge, we're still going to hope. But our hope against hope is really just a belief in the irrational, whereas this is not. The Greek word for hope, elpis, really emphasizes a confident expectation. Abraham has a certainty. It's saying contrary to hope, and that first hope is that that uncertainty that man has based on just human perception. Contrary to everything that man thinks is normal, in hope, that is, in a confidence in God, Abraham believed. He trusted God. He's not just having faith in faith. He is believing, he believes the promise of God. Now, you hear today in all kinds of evangelical circles, and you'll hear people say, well, we just need to believe God. Well, what exactly are we believing? That's what I usually want to say. Well, just trust God that this will happen tomorrow. Well, I don't recall anywhere that God promised that X would happen tomorrow. I can trust God to sustain me. I can trust God to give me wisdom in the midst of whatever circumstances present themselves so that I can apply the word to that. But, but I, can't, um, I can't just believe that God is going to do whatever I would like him to do. It seems a little bit presumptuous and arrogant, uh, if you ask me. So, uh, but here, that's not what Abraham is doing. Abraham has a specific promise from God to him. That's one of the most important things in claiming promises is make sure it's a promise that you can claim. Make sure that, that you're not reading your neighbor's mail. That's what happens a lot of times with some Old Testament promises. People go out and it's a promise to, to in a particular situation to a particular group of people in a specific historical set of circumstances, and we sort of grab it because it's a nice promise and say, well, that, that, that relates to me. Trouble is that it was addressed to your next-door neighbor, the Jewish people. It's not addressed to the church. And so you have to make sure that a promise really is for us, and then when it is, then we can uh, claim it. And we see the dynamics of what it means to claim a promise in these verses. Contrary to hope, in hope he believed with the result that he became the father of many nations. He trusted in God. God fulfilled his promise. Uh, Sarah became pregnant. And it just boggles my mind to think about everything that God had to do to bring about that pregnancy. I mean, here's a, as we age, and a lot of you realize this, as you age, your skin loses its elasticity. And that particularly applies in a pregnancy. And if you think about what happens after menopause with the reproductive organs inside of a woman and all of that loses all of its elasticity, the blood, everything else that, that keeps it vibrant so that it can be a, a, a place where life can be generated and nurtured uh, during the nine months of pregnancy, God has to change all of that inside of Sarah. Uh, we're not just talking about the, the literal physical act of procreation. It seems to me when you start breaking down all the other aspects of what is involved in a pregnancy, that that's the, that's the easy part. The hard part is getting it to where the woman has a healthy pregnancy and that her skin tones change, all these other things change uh, inside of her so that she is now able to carry and nurture and biologically provide all of the needs for that, uh, that embryo and fetus that's inside of her, her womb. 
So Abraham just trusts God. He, whatever it is, God's going to bring it about. Now, in verse 19, we read that he's not, not being weak in faith. And, the, and it's not that faith is viewed here as being in, in grades of faith, a little faith or a lot of faith. But it is simply that he was not weak in faith. He is strong. And it's a positive way of saying uh, that he was, he was strong. He, and he goes on to say in the next verse that he was the, the, the uh, Greek, I mean, the English translations uh, usually uh, mess it up a little bit and say that he was fully persuaded. You're either persuaded or you're not persuaded. Fully doesn't enter into it. There's no gradations of persuaded. If I tell you that it's raining outside, you either believe me or you don't believe me. You don't just say, well, I believe you a little bit. Well, that's like being a little bit pregnant. Uh, You're either persuaded or you're not. There's not, uh, the Bible doesn't present grades. And and the the Greek word that's used there doesn't present a gradation of, of confidence either. It is a certainty. So... He's not weak in faith, which is just simply another way of saying he was strong in faith, and he did <clears throat> he did not consider his body. And that word for consider is the uh, Greek word katanoeo, which means simply to observe, to notice, to contemplate. He kind of looked at himself, as some of us have as we've gotten older, and thought, well, uh, I guess my football playing days are over with or whatever. It just isn't going to happen anymore. And so he looks at his own body, and he just doesn't take that into account. He's not he, he, the promise of God is more real to him than what he sees, what he feels, how he feels when he wakes up in the morning, what's been going on for the last twenty years. None of that matters. The promise of God is more real to him than any experience, which is the way it should be for for any of us. So he's not looking at his own body, which he considered already dead. That is incapable of sexual reproduction and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. So they're, they're both incapable. And in verse 20, he then says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith or his faith is, is strengthened by uh, a couple of different ways to understand that he was either strengthened by means of faith or God strengthened his faith. I think he was he was strengthened, or his his conviction was strengthened be, by means of faith. That is by means of what he understood uh, to be true and what he believed that God that God was doing. Okay, that's the end of my uh, slides. I ran out of time uh, getting this ready. He did not waver, and that has the clear idea that. Uh, he did not uh, doubt. He did not hesitate. Uh, the Greek word is diakrino, but it, it's used as an idiom of a person who is striving with himself. They're not really sure what kind of a decision to make. They're sort of indecisive. And so it's used in a context like this that he, he wasn't indecisive about the promise of God uh, through unbelief, but was strengthened by means of faith giving glory to God and being fully convinced. Fully convinced is the Greek word plerophorthes, which has the idea of just being absolutely certain, absolutely assured 
of a specific set of results. It's not fully convinced. It's just convinced. How much more convinced do you need to be than just being convinced? If you are, um, if you are filling out your income tax return and you have double-checked all of your figures and you're convinced, do you need to be any more convinced that you've done it right? No, you're convinced. So there's, just like faith, faith means you believe something is true. And there's not grades of faith. You don't need to have more faith or less faith. You just need to trust. When we trust, we know that something, uh, something is certain. So he is convinced that what he, that is what God had promised, God was able to perform. He's finally understood omnipotence and God's faithfulness, that if God promises something because he's righteous and just, he's going to fulfill it. He can't go back on his promise. And if he's promised it, he can bring it to pass because of his omnipotence. So he's convinced finally that God can do what he says, that God is really God. And so verse 22 says, therefore, it was imputed to him as righteousness. And we've gone over the doctrine of imputation, that it's reckoned to him as righteousness. This is an application now of that, that because he believed God, he was uh, credited with righteousness. Now, verse 23 through 25, Paul is now going to summarize what he has said in terms of application for his audience. He's gone through all this Old Testament analysis, and he says in verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone. This isn't just dusty old manuscripts in ancient history. It's not legendary myth. He says it wasn't just for us, but for our sake as well. It's not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall, shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Notice the object here is in the Father, believing the promise of God in relation to Jesus Christ as our Savior. And Jesus is identified as the one who was raised from the dead. And then furthermore, verse 25, we read, who was delivered up. And then we have two interesting phrases. Both of them translate a, uh, a similar, uh, the same, actually the same Greek uh, preposition. He was delivered up uh, because of our uh, trespasses or because of our offenses and was raised, referring to the resurrection, because of our justification. Now, the first word that is translated delivered up is the, uh, is the Greek word paradothe, which is an aorist uh, passive indicative, indicating that he receives the action of being given up. Now, that word paradidomai is the same word that's being used of, of betrayal, of, of, of Judas betrayed him, and it has the idea also of being uh, arrested or taken into, uh, 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 taken into custody by the Rom- Roman soldiers. He's delivered up because of our offenses. Now, this is where it gets really in- interesting in terms of understanding uh, the Greek here. And this first use of this preposition dia indicates that he is, de- he is delivered, he's arrested, he's taken to the cross because of our offenses, because he has to pay the price for our sins. 
And so it is very clear that that is a statement related to accomplishing the work that is necessary for our justification. But justification is complete. I mean, the work that is done for our justification, the payment for our sins was completed at the cross, not the resurrection. Some people get confused when they read the next clause and says he was raised because of our justification. Now, the resurrection did not have anything to do with the soteriological work of Christ on the cross. But this is the same construction that we have in, in the previous uh, causal phrase. Both of them have a dia plus the, uh, plus the accusative. And the second use uh, should probably have the sense that he was raised on account of our justification in the sense that it was necessary effect of the payment of sin to, to express God's approval of what had been accomplished on the cross, that because justification or because the payment for sin was complete, it was then necessary for God uh, as a consequence to raise Jesus uh, from the dead. So it has a little different sense, uh, a causal sense, than the first uh, use. Uh, one writer has called that the, the, the first one is sort of a uh, prospective uh, reference. Uh, I call this a prospective reference in the sense of because of the need to or for the sake of. So it's the idea that Jesus was raised with a view to or for the sake of our justification because it had been accomplished already, uh, that is, the payment for sin had been accomplished already on the cross. So this brings us to an end of chapter 4, which is the first part of his explanation of why we need to be justified, and then we'll get into the consequences with the beginning of, um, of chapter 5. And we'll start there next time. Remember, no class next Tuesday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to go through this doctrine of justification uh, one more time, just to set it in our minds that we're not justified by anything that we do. Justification doesn't change us in any way. Justification is the result of the fact that we have received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That righteousness is accounted to us. It's credited to us so that God the Father looks at that righteousness and on the basis of Christ's righteousness and our possession of it declares us to be righteous. It's not as if we never sin, but it is, it is because we have believed the promise of God as focused on the work of the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. Father, we pray that you would make all these things very clear to us as we continue to think through uh, all that you have done in bringing us to salvation and making it possible. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.